I'm Lara Land, somatic coach and yoga teacher trainer, and this is the Beyond Trauma podcast. What a couple of years we have had. The challenges continue to grow, and more and more of us are experiencing some level of traumatic stress. My commitment here is to bring you the most up-to-date insights on exactly how trauma affects our mind-body-spirit system and how we can work with our bodies to soften its impacts. You will be hearing from trauma survivors and researchers, and together, we are going to incorporate what they have to teach us to heal ourselves and promote the well-being of all those around us. Here we go. I am so excited to share that my book, The Essential Guide to Trauma-Sensitive Yoga, comes out this spring. This is the book for every yoga teacher, studio, and practitioner who wants to incorporate an inclusive approach to yoga. It is available for purchase on my website, laraland.us, and everywhere books are sold. If you're loving this podcast, you are going to love this book. Okay, friends, this one got me pretty excited. In this episode about EMDR, we our talking brain science. I am so excited. Rotem Breyer, a licensed professional counselor, certified EMDR therapist, EMDR consultant, and an advanced EMDR trainer is on with me today. He is the founder of EMDR Learning Community, a community that brings EMDR therapists together and provides education on EMDR therapy and the integration of this modality with other treatment approaches. And that is important. He is very knowledgeable about things like yoga and mindfulness and somatics and therapeutic relationship, talk therapy and neuroscience. And he brings a lot into this conversation. He's the co-founder of EMDR Denver, a practice that helps clients heal with an EMDR first approach. Rodham spends time consulting on cases, coaching EMDR therapists, and helping his clients heal from the effects of trauma and attachment wounds. He has a book that just came out, which is very exciting, called The Art and Science of EMDR, which I highly recommend. I read it. And in this conversation, we talk about what is EMDR. So if you are curious, this rapid eye movement, what is it? I always thought it was kind of weird maybe a little woo-woo. We talk about that. We talk about how it works. I think we really get down to what it does as far as brainwaves to help to process traumatic memories. And you might be a convert like I am after this. It's very, very interesting conversation. I think you'll agree. I hope you'll agree. And I'm looking forward to hearing what you think about This one, an introduction to EMDR, processing traumatic memories, and a holistic, integrated approach. Take a listen. And welcome, Rotem. Thank you for joining me. Thanks for having me, Lara. It's nice to meet you and get to know you. It's been fun for me through this podcast to get referrals from different guests that I have on. And you were referred to me. So you must be very special. I don't know if I'm special, but what I want to talk about with you today is special. Mm. 
Well, I was talking to Dr. Jamie Marich and I was I was telling her how I'm very curious about EMDR. And, you know, she said that you would be a great person to talk to about EMDR. So I'm I'm actually gonna assume that most of the listeners like don't really know what EMDR is. I have a, a yoga background, so a lot of folks that listen are in the yoga world and are, you know, familiar with some other therapeutic practices. But I think I know for me, EMDR is kind of like a, a little mysterious. So maybe you can just share some basics about what it is and why you were so drawn to this therapeutic model. Absolutely. Yeah. So EMDR stands for eye movement desensitization and reprocessing, and nobody needs to remember that. But basically, it's a treatment that was developed in the 80s by Dr. Francine Shapiro, originally for trauma. So it was used to treat trauma. Since then, it's been really, it's been mind-blowing to me and many of my colleagues just seeing how effective it is. I had been a therapist for about a decade before I got trained in EMDR. And I really remember very specifically thinking, what have I done all this time? What have I done? There's like before EMDR and after, and things really started shifting for me in terms of my work, in terms of the outcomes that I see when I work with clients, And what we know today is that it's not necessarily only for trauma or or at least not what we used to think about trauma as trauma, because we have a broadened definition of what trauma is now. And EMDR can really help with a lot of different conditions. So when EMDR started in the 80s, it was kind of like a foo-foo thing. Even a lot of therapists were really cautious about being associated with EMDR because it it's it really is a weird concept you sit in front of a therapist who moves their fingers that's how it started now we have light bars but basically what we do we have the client focus on certain aspects of either traumatic or disturbing memories and then we have them move their eyes really quickly and that process leads to neural integration, which eventually leads to healing of traumatic memories. Yeah. It does sound kind of nuts if you <laughs> the first time that you hear about it. Yeah. But like you said, you're seeing the results. I'm seeing amazing results, Lara, every day that I work with like my clients. And it really is amazing. So just to explain the weird concept, and I'm not going to get into too many technical details about neuroscience, but basically what we're doing, we're imitating a natural healing mechanism that exists in the brain. At least that's the theory. We have different theories of why it works. What we know, when I say we, I mean EMDR therapists, what we know is that it works because we see it working all the time. But the natural healing mechanism that we believe is the mechanism that helps clients heal is based on the adaptive information processing model. And it basically imitates a healing mechanism that happens in the brain when we are in REM sleep. So 
A lot of people confuse REM sleep, which is rapid eye movement. Our eyes are moving really fast when we're sleeping. A lot of people confuse that with dream sleep. And there's a lot of correlation there, but it doesn't have to be. And REM sleep basically helps us process memories. So if you think about, or if your listeners can think about something mildly disturbing that happened maybe a few weeks ago, usually you feel disturbed by it, but then you go to sleep, you wake up in the morning, maybe you feel a little bit better. And then the next day you feel a little bit better. And then a week later, you feel a lot better. And then a month later, it's just something that happened a month ago because your brain is processing that information. And what happens during trauma is that the brain mechanism that processes the information is not working well. So the trauma, the memory gets stuck or what what we call an EMDR, it gets frozen in time Mm. with these same thoughts and emotions and body sensations, which I know you probably have a lot to say about the body sensations, which is a deep part of the traumatic memories or the disturbing memories. These memories are stuck. So if you had certain things that happened to you when you were six or seven, you have that these same thoughts, thought patterns of a six or seven-year-old and same emotions, these same raw emotions that you felt then, you might feel them 20, 30, 40, 50 years later, if you haven't processed that. And when we do reprocessing, people really get more into their adult self. They're able to observe and not to be so much into the the memories in terms of emotion. We kind of like, it feels weird for a lot of clients, but they're able to look at their memories without all the emotionality. Yeah, a couple of things are coming to mind. I mean, as you bring up the REM sleep, there's been a lot of conversation, I think, and recent attention to studies around sleep. I don't know if you're familiar with Matthew Walker's work and why we sleep, but I hear that sleep and the sleep trackers are so big right now and these different types of sleep. And I've come to understand, yeah, that that REM sleep is so important for processing memories and emotions, even like from the day. And, you know, one of the things that we know that happens in post-trauma is also inability to really sleep or have deep sleep. I'm just wondering if kind of some of the EMDR work helps to kind of maybe make up for some of that, what's not happening at night. Yeah, no, absolutely. Absolutely. So one of the things that we know from people with trauma is that they don't sleep well. A lot of times I say to my clients, if you have to choose between coming to therapy or sleep well, then you need to sleep well. That's that's the most basic thing for clients to heal. And a lot of times as we start EMDR to process traumatic memories, sleep improves as a result. But yeah, I'm, I'm familiar with Matt Walker's work. And I also I spoke with Dr. Robert Stickgold, who is one of the, the leading experts in dream and sleep research. He's a retired Harvard researcher and professor. And he talks, he said that post-traumatic stress disorder is sometimes can be considered post-traumatic sleep disorder. It's just, it impacts sleep in a really major way. And again, as we start processing 
traumatic memories, we see that sleep often improves. One of the things we see, for example, is that there's change in nightmares. So nightmares is one of the classic symptoms of post-traumatic stress disorder. And nightmares, according to some theories, it's the brain's attempt to process, but it's a failed attempt. So nightmares, as opposed to regular dreams, are repetitive in nature. So a lot of people who experience trauma have the exact same nightmare every night, and it doesn't change. And as we start processing with EMDR, the dreams start to change. And it's not uncommon for people to also have very vivid dreams. And sometimes they're more nightmares. And sometimes they're more just vivid dreams with a lot of emotions. So it is something that we see often when we start processing, we see that the symptoms start to change. Nightmares, again, is one of the main symptoms of post-traumatic stress disorder. Yeah, this is super interesting. You know, I'm just thinking if you're kind of replicating a natural process of the, you know, that happens to our bodies in the night, what, you know, similar to what our body does on its own with the eyes moving, but maybe it's not happening as much or, and you're creating that, you know, in this therapeutic environment. And it's kind of getting this reset that maybe the individual isn't really getting at night. And then it starts to teach the body to do that again. That's kind of what it's Exactly. I love that you said that that we teach the body to do that. Where so there really interesting research in EMDR of before and after. Now we have brain scanners that can really see what happens either over time or in real time. Right? We have these fMRIs and CAT scans and PET scans and all kinds of brain scanners that 50 years ago. We had to rely on theories and intuition, Mm. and now we have hard data evidence that these methods work or what doesn't work, right? We can see what works and what doesn't work. And eventually, therapy that works is therapy that changes the brain. It's not that healing is limited to that. And I use the word healing. I'm, I'm very mindful that I use the word healing because I think for a lot of us, it's uncomfortable to use this word. But I think that, again, if we're imitating a natural process that happens in the brain or supposed to happen in the brain, and we're doing it and things are getting better, that's the definition of healing. Yeah. And I think that's a a great explanation for what's happening. And the brain is, like you said, it's caught at a certain period of time. And we know that, that that happens with trauma where we get stuck in that period of time and keep revisiting that memory. And it can be like a, a flashback as if it's happening in real time or the emotions are still very present. And folks can and even tend to recreate similar situations in life, keep ending up in a kind of same kind of loop, that same kind of situation, trying to have it end up differently, right? That's kind of like it's happening in the nightmare and in a real life nightmare where we're stuck in this loop. So it, it sounds like what you're doing is like disrupting that that kind of loop that the brain is stuck in. Absolutely. That's exactly what we do. And again, the the beauty of EMDR is that we're we're processing a memory. So we're trying to find the right memory to work on. 
And one of the things that we ask clients when we process with EMDR is we use what's called SUD scale. So it's S-U-D, which is subjective unit of disturbance. So we ask the client on a scale of zero to 10, when zero is no disturbance and 10 is the worst, how disturbing is the memory or how disturbing does the memory feel to you right now in this moment? And what happens with traumatic memories, again, 40, 50 years later, if you ask a, a Vietnam veteran, how disturbing does the memory of losing your friend or it, and seeing it, it would feel, unless they got good treatment, it would feel very disturbing. So very likely to be nine or 10. And when we process with EMDR, it doesn't happen in every session, but very often what we see is that we start with a very high number of that scale, the disturbance scale. And then toward the end of the session, we ask the same question and it's very low, which is amazing. That's, wow. that's, that's one of the best feelings that I think we can have as therapists that it really reduces all this disturbance. So that's one piece. We process the memory. But like you said, Lara, the symptoms also go away. So the, all the triggers, the present triggers are also going away. So oftentimes, you know, you, you process with a client and then they'll come back the next week and they'll just report that things are not as triggering. You know, I, I just worked with a client. I just saw him yesterday. So the week before we processed something very specific, a sound that is very triggering. I don't want to get into too many details, you know, about my clients, but let's just say it's a sound. And that sound is extremely, was extremely triggering. And then he was exposed to that sound during the week. And let's just say it's a sound of, of someone, of a person. He was exposed to that sound and he said, it was just a sound, you know, it's, mm. it's that person's like that, that words that come out of this person's mouth, but it didn't impact his nervous system. And what do we know about the long term? Will that last ongoing once, once this process is done or does it have to be repeated? I love this question. Yes, yes, it's long lasting. And again, that's why I love this modality so much because yeah. it's long lasting. Once you process the memories, you, you have to, first of all, there's, there's a lot of work that needs to be done sometimes to find the right memories. And again, that's where, you know, the work with what we call simple trauma versus more complex trauma is different. With complex trauma, it's sometimes trickier to find the right memories. But once we find the right memories and we process them, the effects are long lasting. So it stops being triggering. And again, all that is not just in theory or my opinion or what I see in my office. That's what a lot of therapists, EMDR therapists are reporting. And we also have research to support it. So, you know, they're doing, they're checking with, you know, some people who got treatment after six months and 12 months. And we see a really significant long-term reduction in disturbance associated with the memory and the symptoms. Yeah, that's incredible. The research is really there. And that's why I wanted to delve more into this. I'm wondering, you're talking about finding the right memory. I think I remember in your book, and we definitely want to shout out your forthcoming book, 
you talked about the importance of finding like kind of that either the first memory or the strongest. Yeah. So th this is where things get interesting. There are different approaches to which memory to start with. And the interesting thing is that people have very strong opinions about how to approach finding the right memory. And my approach is you have to be client-centered. You have to focus on the person in front of you and decide mm -hmm. together. Quite frankly, that's the way I do it. I don't care so much about the theory, but about the client in front of me. Now, it's not that I don't care at all about the theory, but I know that there's more than one theory which leads me to the conclusion that it's not black or white. And this is where I don't know if it's relevant, Lara, for your listeners, because it gets a little technical of how to find the memories. But maybe I'll, I can just spend about 30 seconds talking about it. One approach says, focus on the symptom. Whatever brought your client to your office, find a memory that is causing these symptoms and reprocess these memories. Another approach says, go to the earliest time that your client remembers feeling like that. So go to the earliest memory. And both of them have, you know, really good theories about why they are right. But I don't necessarily go with one of them every time. I just decide based on the client who's in front of me and what their history is and what their coping skills are and what their, you know, ability to tolerate intense emotions, right? Because some of the, you know, the theories say go to the most intense memory. And with some clients, I'm very comfortable doing that. But with some clients, it might take several months before we even get to the reprocessing phase. So mm -hmm. EMDR ha has eight phases and we're not really getting to the actual reprocessing until like the, you know, with the eye movements or the bilateral stimulation until we get to phase four. So there's a lot that can be done. And again, sometimes for months and months before we start reprocessing. I think it's worth spending maybe a couple of minutes talking about bilateral stimulation because I mentioned the eye movements. This is how EMDR started with eye movements as a form of bilateral stimulation. So again, activating both hemispheres of the brain and which leads to integration. But what we found later is that there are other forms of bilateral stimulation. So some people, instead of moving their eyes really fast, they're holding these tappers that vibrate from side to side. And as a result of these vibrating to side to side, we get the same effect that we get from the eye movement. And we can also do it with tones. So sound that goes bilaterally from side to side, also activating the same mechanism. Wow. <laughs> yeah. That's incredible that people were able to figure that out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, 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 you know, another interesting piece of information, until COVID, there are a few people who were doing EMDR virtually. It was kind of like, I don't know, maybe not considered safe for some, a lot of people thought it was not safe to process traumatic memories when you're not in the same physical space with your client. But then COVID hit, 
and everybody needed mental health, right? Like everybody needed help. Then all these virtual platforms started popping up and now we're using it all the time and it's working. And some people are not comfortable with it. There are different levels of comfort for different clinicians and different clients. But what we saw is that it's actually working. It's as effective when clients sit in their space and look at a computer screen and there's like this dot that moves from side to side and they move their eyes while getting instructions on what to focus on. And it's working. You know, I think a lot of that, correct me if I'm wrong, might have to do with what you were talking about, which I'd like to delve into a little deeper about all that leads up to that moment, the relationship that you're building with your client, you know, before you even get to that reprocessing. And I know that, you know, you mentioned you were therapist for 10 years before you integrated EMDR. So I'm curious what's happening in that time leading up to being ready to process the traumatic event. And I'm, I'm just sort of curious about, I'm studying to be a therapist, like what therapeutic models you were using before, if you're bringing any of them in, into the room. Oh my God. I can talk about it for the next 12 hours, Laura. <laughs> Maybe we'll schedule another time to talk. I, so let me break it down to your question. So other therapeutic modalities, absolutely. No, let me go back to the relationship, actually. So in my book, I wrote a chapter about the EMDR and the therapeutic relationship because when EMDR was initially developed, it was taught as a protocol, not as a therapeutic approach. And it gets very technical. That's where EMDR is different than or different from a lot of other therapeutic modalities. It's very technical. And a lot of people, when they first get trained, they feel like they can't be themselves. They can't be in the relationship because they have to follow a protocol step by step. And we do need to follow the protocol. But what I'm saying in my book, in chapter three, specifically when I talk about the therapeutic relationship in the context of EMDR, is that we have to prioritize the therapeutic relationship. We have to think about it. That comes first. Because we know from decades of research that the therapeutic relationship is the number one predictor of positive therapeutic outcomes, regardless of what therapeutic modality you're using. Mm -hmm. So whatever you're using, CBT, DBT, EMDR, or IFS, you want to be mindful of the therapeutic relationship because we're really going with our clients to very, very, very vulnerable places, and they need to know that we're in it with them. And if that's missing, we are less likely to get the therapeutic outcomes that we want or the results that we want from therapy. So that's the first part of the question. The second part is integration of other models. So yeah, we have these beautiful integrations of other modalities with EMDR. And there's so much research. Again, that's what makes EMDR so fun these days that we have research to support what we're doing. When EMDR started, it was just a lot of trial and error. But now we have these integration, a lot of integration with parts work modalities. So mm. IFS and internal family systems or ego state therapy, they're very similar approaches with 
different names and different terminology, basically working with younger parts. And we also have beautiful integrations with somatic work. So somatic modalities like somatic experiencing or any other modality that involves somatic processing. I'm just loving this. Those are all the things I'm interested in. So (laughs) I could really see combining. Absolutely. Yeah. So I know, uh, Lara, you're into trauma-sensitive yoga. So I have a a colleague in Denver uh, who does trauma-sensitive yoga. And I refer my clients as part of you need to learn these skills to regulate your nervous system. And this is complementary to EMDR. I do a lot of work with a neurofeedback provider who has an office not too far from my office, and we do a lot of collaboration, right? So we, we're always in touch with each other. What, what are we doing? What am I doing? And what is she doing? And how together we're helping our clients get better. Kind of like the sum is greater than the parts when you integrate these modalities. Yes. Yeah. And I'm, that's something I'm always like drilling into the teachers that I'm training is building that referral network and have, you know, knowing that you aren't and shouldn't be and don't need to be everything for everyone and knowing when to refer out and having just some other folks in your circle that you can refer out to. So I love that you're an example of that. Yeah. And we were talking about platforms. I have an idea for a project I'm working on where I would love to include you as a referral. We'll have to talk about that after. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I'm happy to talk about after, but I want to go back to community because I think community is so important. And I'm just going to go on a, a little rant here, but Big Pharma is telling us that, you know, we have so much depression and mental health issues because of chemical imbalance. And I think that we have so much mental health issues because we lost community. We don't have community like we used to before. I think that it's impossible that our brain chemistry changed so much in such short period of time. And if that was the true, that the result, it's a result of chemical imbalance, then taking you know, medications would have solved our mental health crisis. And what I see, and I don't know what you see or what your listeners see, but I see that it's just moving in one direction. It's not a good direction in terms of our our mental health. And I think that if we have a community, if we invest in a community, it's going to help our mental health. We are not wired biologically, evolutionary evolutionarily maybe i don't know in terms of evolution we're not wired to be in isolation we're we're social creatures and if we're not doing it together then we're more likely to experience mental health issues so i created a community of trained emdr therapists that we learn together and we share information and we do challenges and we have speakers in It's just more fun because I find that my experience in my basic EMDR training was, wow, this is so effective. I really want to learn everything about it. And I found out that there's a lot of, there are a lot of people who share the same experience. So we're just learning together. We're kind of like EMDR geeks 
mm. that like to geek out on EMDR together. Yeah, I mean, you said so many good things there. I know there's that kind of stat that's running around that loneliness is equivalent to like 15 cigarettes a day as far as negative outcomes, you know, earlier mortality on on the human. So being in community is so important <laughs> and so hard to do. There's like everything in in our society is like pulling us toward isolation and we have to really seek that out. And it's almost going against the grain, you know, and I, it's something I'm so glad that you kind of went off on that to, to say that because I don't think we can say it enough. I mean, I know it and I have to remind myself and I just actually did something recently the last two days to um, just have more community in my life because I was starting to feel just the impacts of isolation. Yeah, you burn out when you don't have community, when you're isolated, you burn out, especially, especially for therapists and healers and people in the healing professionals. If we don't have a community, we tend to burn out. And I've seen it happen to a lot of my colleagues. I don't know, you know, like, especially in the beginning and during COVID, it was so hard for so many people including therapists. And this is something that I think we need to put it out there and talk about it. We were impacted. Therapists were impacted by this pandemic, like many other people. It just shows us how isolation can really have a major impact on our mental wellness and our well-being. Yeah. Yeah. And everyone ran to you. Uh, so I know from other therapist friends, they're kind of processing now because at that time they were a little bit in like helper mode. So now that things are a little bit kind of, you know, there's some processing that's happening now as we're relaxing a little. And actually that kind of leads me to a question I had about, you know, where in this stage of trauma would someone come to seek out EMDR, for instance, if they're still experiencing trauma in their lives, is that an appropriate time to be processing or should it be well after the fact? That's a good question, Larb. And there are, again, different approaches to that. So people come in different phases. Again, some people come two weeks after they had a major car accident. That tends to be, generally speaking, easier to work on or process unless there's other traumas that are coming up. But then some people come, I have a client in his late 60s who had, you know, major trauma in childhood, and it's still impacting. So there's, again, that's where the answer to your question is, it depends, it really depends on the client and what their trauma is and what their coping skills are and what their support system looks like, right? Like that's going back to community. Uh, mm -hmm. If they have a support system that would look different and we can help clients in, in every step of the way. But if people are more regulated and they have good coping skills and they have good support system, we can move usually move faster toward uh, reprocessing traumatic memories. So yeah, I have a lot, I have questions about that then. Um, <laughs> so good. A couple, I, uh, one is I just wondered if there was a, a minimum age. So if children or teens or young people, if this would be appropriate for. And then my other questions around building 
capacity? Because you mentioned that a couple times about being, you know, like recognizing what level of stimulation you're, you know, the individual might be up for and helping them to build that capacity. So I'm, I'm just wondering, and I know one thing I loved about your book is you talk about mindfulness. So maybe you can just explore some of these ideas. Is mindfulness a part of building that capacity? What other methods are you using to, to help the person be ready for facing those memories? Yeah, that might be another 12-hour lecture. I'm going to narrow it down. We use a lot of imagination. And the, the amazing thing, again, because of these brain scanners, is that we can see what happens in the brain while people are imagining. And we're kind of tricking the brain. So if you're imagining a safe place, this is one of the exercises that kind of like the most basic exercises that every EMDR therapist learns in their basic EMDR training, there's a safe place or calm place that when you close your eyes and you visualize and you integrate other senses too. So sometimes it smells and tastes and, you know, what you're feeling in your body when you're in that safe space, your body really believes that you're there. So, you know, there's all these chemical messengers, hormones and neurotransmitters that respond to that as if you are in a safe place. So these are some of the exercises that we're using in safe place. We have some other exercises, but again, my approach is always client-centered. So whatever works for the client, I don't necessarily think that we have to use a very specific exercise as long as what the client is doing is helping them to regulate their nervous system. That's all I care about. So, you know, if you do trauma-sensitive yoga and that helps reduce your activity of your nervous system so you're not as triggered, then you do that. I know, you know, my friend and, and mentor, Jamie Marich, that you talked with, she does that in sessions. She's, she would do yoga because she's a yoga instructor too. So she would do yoga. So she and my colleague, uh, Dr. Ariel Schwartz, does that too. She's, you know, she's, she's teaching other clinicians also how to incorporate yoga into therapy, but that can be a, a very effective way to regulate the nervous system. So in other words, it doesn't matter what you do as long as you help your client regulate their nervous system. I mean, I imagine that it's building up more capacity kind of on the day-to-day with a practice and practices that you can use in the moment. Right. So in the book, I explain, and this is, I think this is really important, especially for therapists, EMDR therapists, and people who are going to be or are already EMDR clients doing a, some kind of exercise in your therapist's office. That's really great, but that's just the beginning. If you want to really wire these coping skills into your brain and have them be the default mode of your brain, so instead of being triggered or overwhelmed by certain things, you want to be able to maintain calmness, you have to create strong connections in the neural networks in your brain. And in order to do that, you have to practice regularly and consistently. 
Not one day, not one week, and not even one month. You have to do it every day over several months. And that, and again, there's fascinating, fascinating research. I always tell all my consultees to read The Brain That Changes Itself by Norman Deutsch that talks about neuroplasticity and the brain's ability to rewire itself based on experience. So there are fascinating studies that he reviews in this book that show that you have to practice consistently in order to create these permanent new networks to replace the old networks, to replace the trauma networks, to replace the networks that make you overwhelmed every time you hear a loud sound. If you want to create the calmness as your default mode, you have to practice these techniques or coping skills or emotion regulation techniques or whatever you want to call it. You have to do it regularly and consistently. Yeah. You have to imagine that all all the repetitions that right. it had to create the other, right? Yeah. Yep. And it's exactly. just learning something new. It takes it takes repetition. Yeah, practicing those skills. In your book, you also mentioned the three levels of brain that need to be stimulated, the thinking, feeling, and the sensing. Would you mind going a l- little bit into that for us? I do not mind at all. I, I would love to get into it. And I, I would love to get into it without getting into too many technical details and names of brain structures and, and all that. And that's how I wrote the book. I want to simplify and I want people to understand concepts. So we have the thinking brain. That's the part of the brain that is located behind our forehead, known as the prefrontal cortex or PFC. This is our thinking brain. This is where we do math and this is where we do our taxes and plan our vacations and retirement. And this is thinking. This is the part of the brain that is unique to us humans. This is where our verbal language is being processed. So this is one part. This is the thinking brain. Then we have the feeling brain. That's where emotions are being processed. And that's in the area called the limbic system. So we have structures like the amygdala and the hippocampus. And again, nobody needs to remember that. But this is more raw emotions. And then we have the sensing brain. And this is where our brain meets the spinal cord. This is kind of like at the base of our head or or, or the base of our brain. And this is the brainstem. So this is where very basic functions like breathing and blood pressure and body sensations are being processed. And why I love EMDR so much is that we're using or we're activating these three parts as opposed to most therapeutic modalities. Again, going back to the 10 years before I got trained in EMDR, it was mostly just talking. And when we talk, it's, it's really great. It feels really great in the moment to talk to get things off your chest, but the results are limited. So when you, when you talk, you're not really processing things. It can be helpful. So I don't, I don't want to create that sense that, you know, EMDR is the only thing that works, but talk therapy has its limitations. And again, if you read or if your audience, your listeners read The Body Keeps the Score, Bessel van der Kolk really explains really well why a lot of the work that we need to do is somatic. On a somatic level, 
This is where our deep emotions, this is where our traumas, this is where our early childhood memories are stored in the brain. It's not so much the thinking brain or the, the verbal part of the brain. It's more in these deeper parts of the structures of the brain. Yeah, absolutely. And I think a lot of listeners are familiar with that book. And thank goodness it's a part of even, you know, almost everyday folks. <laughs> That's the right way to put it. But it's become a very, uh, you know, it's been a bestseller and it, it really brought to attention what you're pointing out, which is we can't just talk our way out of the impacts of trauma. The body needs to be involved. And like you put it, the thinking, feeling, and sensing. And when we capture all three of those, I think we have something as far as the processing that you're pointing to. Yeah. You've shared so much today, especially loving the neuroscience. I know you're like, I don't know how much neuroscience uh, people want, but I, I think there are a lot of folks like me that are just love hearing the neuroscience, understanding. I think there's something you said before about the chemistry. You know, I think we got so much further with the brain scans and the technology. That's what I want to say that I think there was an excitement that happened where folks could say, neuroscientists could say, we see this change in brains and we could say, you know, the brain chemistry could be off. And so this whole research and movement went into fixing that with chemicals. And what we know really, and it's starting to swing the other way, is that there's just a whole bunch of components that go into how we develop and maladaptations. And part of that is our DNA, our history, and then our environment. And our childhood has such a big impact. And so there's so many factors I don't think we can point to, you know, take a pill. Sometimes a pill is necessary, but we need to look at a combination of offerings, I think. And that's kind of what I felt you were speaking to and what EMDR might actually kind of hold for us. Right. Yeah, I agree with that. In the 80s, there was this perception of Prozac first came out and that would be the end-all, be-all solution to people's suffering. And now we know that it's not. There are a lot more medications now and it's in the same category. So Prozac is a SSRI that works on the serotonin receptors in the brain. And a lot of people take it, but they're still depressed. And again, we don't see a reduction in the general population we don't see a reduction in depression. We see an increase in depression. So if that was the stable and all solution, we would have seen less people depressed. Again, can pills help some people? Sometimes, yes, but it's not the real long-term solution for every person. Yeah. Well... I think that folks learning about EMDR, and like you said at the beginning, there might have been some sense of it being woo-woo even now. It's been around for a while, and I'm glad that you've pointed us toward the research and you know what you're seeing and what other EMDR practitioners are seeing to help folks who had any of that idea that it might be woo-woo to really take a closer look at it, because you did that for me. I've been lucky enough to take a preview at your forthcoming book coming out April 11th. Am I right? April 11th. Yes. And it's on pre-sale pre-order now at a discount. 
And I know you shared a little bit with me some of your thoughts behind writing this book. I hadn't read much on EMDR, but I experienced that it was something where I could really take in the lessons that you were imparting. And I think you expressed to me as well that it's not it's not super heavy. Do you want to share a little bit of, about the offering? Yeah, absolutely. So most EMDR books are written in a very dense and academic kind of style. I know we have this problem. I'm I'm wondering if you have that that same disease that I have and some of my colleagues have that we buy more books that we can read. Like we we buy books and we start reading them. But what happens with a lot of the MDR books, they're so dense. They've they're really written like like a research paper. And people start reading, they get excited, get the book in the mail, and then they start reading it, and then they put it away because it's just so hard and so dense and so technical. And what I did with this book, I wrote a book that is user-friendly. So it's really an easy read, simple language. You don't have to memorize things. You have to really understand the concept. And that's what I focused on in this book. So, you know, I sent it to some colleagues and they read it over a weekend. And that's exactly what I wanted. That was my vision for the book to be an easy read so people can understand concepts maybe, maybe, hopefully, even enjoy the reading. I did. I really did. I think there's a lot to relate to in there. It speaks both to EMDR therapists, or I'm not sure if that's how you maybe can explain a few EMDR therapists or practitioners, what the right terminology is. But it's it's for someone who's practicing all, to get better at those skills. And I think someone like myself, who's just, who's interested in therapeutic practices, you know, you you talk about mindfulness, you talk about therapeutic relationships. So I think someone who's curious about EMDR, this this would be a great a great place for them to start. Yeah, yeah. So I would say it's for training EMDR therapists and EMDR curious, whoever they are. I think it can really help people really understand the method, understand what they're doing. Again, a lot of therapists who get trained in EMDR, they follow a protocol but they don't always understand why they're doing what they're doing. And that's what this book is about to to really help clinicians and people who are treating with EMDR to give them context to why they're doing what they're doing. Once you understand why you're doing what what you're doing, you don't need to memorize things. You just understand. And then you act based on this knowledge which again, I, I, that's what I realized as a, an EMDR consultant, that people just get better at using this modality once they understand what they're doing. Yes, that is so important when you're trying to learn. If you're just memorizing without the context, it's so much harder to learn. Um, yeah. But understanding why, that's so that's so powerful. I'm wondering if someone wants to get trained as an EMDR therapist, what's the, the route for that? Well, so it depends where they live. So in the United States, we have Amdria, which is the EMDR International Association. You can visit their website and they have a bunch of trainings, whether they're, you know, now training are, are done virtually. Again, that started during the COVID pandemic. So there are virtual trainings or in-person in in different areas. And then if people live outside of the United States, they just need to find what's the 
kind of like the equivalent of EMDR in their country. So in EMDR, in Canada, there's EMDR Canada. In Europe, there's EMDR Europe. In Israel, which is where I am originally from, there's EMDR Israel. So people have that body that is in charge of all the trainings to get basic training. And then there are a lot of advanced training. So I'm I'm spending a lot of time in advanced trainings because I constantly want to expand my knowledge and work on my skills and really get better at it. So, but you have to do the basic training before you get into advanced trainings. Sure, sure. Well, that's something I will be looking into (laughs) when a little pocket of time opens up or I'll have to make that pocket of time because this is very, very interesting. And thank you for... I'm really educating me and the listeners on EMDR. And I appreciate your perspective on the technique and the practice um, because of the way that you're so person-centered, client-centered, and learning a method, but then being adaptable. I think we're very much in alignment. So it's just been a joy to chat with you, Rodem. I'm wondering... If there's anything that I didn't ask you that I should have asked you today? I don't know. Maybe what what do I do for work? So I am the co-founder of EMDR Denver. That is a practice. It's not that we treat all our clients with EMDR, but it's kind of like it's what we call EMDR first. So we're trying to use EMDR whenever we can. If it's not a good fit, of course, we're not going to. It's never a good thing to force your modality your, your method on a person, but we really use a lot of EMDR in our practice. I also started the EMDR learning community that I mentioned that is a community for trained EMDR therapists. If you're in the training, if you're, you know, during the training, we'll let you in, but we limit it to training EMDR therapists. Again, we're a bunch of geeks that just like to geek out on EMDR. And I also provide consultations to EMDR therapists who are just want to get better. So there's a process of certification that people first get trained. And then after they've finished their basic training, they can go through a process of certification. They have to see a certain number of clients and certain number of hours and certain number of hours of consultations. So I do that too. And I, I really enjoy doing that. And, you know, a lot of what I wrote about in the book is stuff that I learned in consultations with, you know, as a consultee, and I keep taking consultations as a consultee too, but also as a consultant. So I kind of learned the the pain points, if you will, of EMDR therapists. And I share some of those in the book to really help people be more effective with this modality. That's where my heart is. I want to help. EMDR clinicians to be more effective because this modality, when you use it effectively, when you know what you're doing, is just so amazing to see the healing that it brings to clients. Yeah, I really got that from your book, you as as a mentor for other clinicians. And I can feel that that's a real sweet spot for you. I urge folks, if you're if you are a clinician at EMDR and you want a group to work with, a community or someone to help you if you're stuck or give you some more tips, we want to send you to Rotem. I'm going to you know, link all your information in the show notes. 
The book is called The Art and Science of EMDR. It's out April 11th. Actually, that's probably right about when this is coming out. So that'll be very perfect. Very exciting. Yeah, you. Yeah, you know, this will probably be coming out right after the book comes out. So yeah, we just want to encourage folks to pick up a copy. Even if you have one of those people that buys too many books that you can go through, it's great to just see them on your shelf. That's what I do over here. And uh, pick it up and kind of go through the pages, find a chapter that stands out for you and come back to it. And I think you you could do that with this book. In addition, it's an easy read. I read it in one afternoon. I powered through a little bit to prepare to talk to you. But uh, I think, like you said, in a weekend, a person can definitely read read this book. It's not overwhelming and it has great, great steps. Thank you, Rotem, for trusting in this meeting and taking time out of your day to connect with me. I really, really appreciate it. Of course. I had fun hanging out with you, Laura, and thank you for having me. I appreciate it. As we buzz around the busy world, it becomes clear there are billions of paths. As we buzz around the busy world, we will appear in other people's photographs. As we speed through the centuries, we will collide and the light will bend. We will be accidentally immortalized in someone else's land.